Hello, and welcome to another edition of the DevOps Podcast. As always, the views represented in this podcast are the individuals alone and do not represent the corporation they work for. Thanks and enjoy. What an honor. This uh, is huge. We finally got it together. Yeah, yeah. I'm flattered. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so can you give us a little bit about your background? Tell us who you are. I mean, I know sure. I've been following you for a long time. But yeah, yeah. Oh, you're that. Okay, now I know who's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, you're that guy. All right. I'm not a stalker, I swear. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm a principal analyst with Forrester Research. I cover DevOps. Uh, Primarily for the infrastructure and operations audience, although you know a lot of enterprise architects and, and other folks read, read my research as well. I think actually more EAs downloaded than IML professionals. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and uh, I uh, also cover enterprise service management. Uh, so I own the ESM Wave. Um, and congratulations, by the way, for the service now coming in so well. Oh, nice. In the wave. And I also own the continuous delivery and release automation wave. So I, I have significant research interests in both traditional ITSM as it's evolving into ESM and DevOps. Um, and uh, actually, DevOps has been a long-standing commitment and in area of interest. I was one of the first reviewers on the Phoenix project, um, you know, going in my correspondence you know, with, with Gene and others in the community goes goes back quite quite some time. We were all trying to figure out, you know, various angles on how to make IT work better, which was a real grim topic, you know, about the 2007, 2008 timeframe when you're working in a big traditional shop like a Wells Fargo or a Target or a Best Buy, it was not pretty. No. Things have gotten a lot better. So, yeah, not by way of background, maybe? No, I love it. That's great. Yeah, you're, you're definitely one of the godfathers of this space, so uh, that's why I'm so happy to have you here with us. So I, I love, I've been following your tweets this week, and I love that all, all the conversations seem to be leading towards, more towards service now, making sense being here, because I, mm-hmm. you know, we have, uh, we've been having a, a bit of a challenge getting people to not walk up to our booth and go, why is a ticketing company at a DevOps? You know, because, <laughs> oh, not again. Yeah, yeah. Um, but now it's really great, because this year it's all been about auditability, traceability, how do we fix this last mile? Yeah. Your guys' wave is the thing that I, I quote daily. I just did it again down at a presentation saying 85% of companies that have tried DevOps have seen no significant increase in release frequency. Like That statistic blew me away. I'm like, right. DevOps is really that broken? And then yeah. you find out why, and you, you were the one that taught me why. So can you, give yeah. the, can you give the audience a little bit of an overview about what you guys found? Well, um, so in terms of the yeah some of the, some of the research that we've done and some of the data that we see in the large technographics panels, it's true. For the majority of the industry, release frequency is not moving, and we're trying to understand why. Um, you get these little vertical-specific flickers year over year, and then they fall back. And I, you know, the working hypothesis is that people are still struggling with the overall enterprise operating model for IT. Yeah. You know, what you have here at this conference, and we need to be honest about this 
you have the leading elements in the given enterprises. And great, you know, you, 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 we do hear stories of overall organizational transformation. We heard from BMW this morning, but there's many more companies where it is still a proof of concept, it's still a pilot. And those POCs and pilots, they're getting a get out of jail free card. They can go do what they want. But as soon as you start to try to roll it out across the enterprise, you are up against decades of entrenched policies and controls. And we don't do it that way. And now we have to read, you know, we, we basically have to redo the policies. We have to redo our understanding of risk. We've got to redo our control strategy. Um, you know, and it's not just auditors, it's lawyers now, you know, I mean, that's one of the few pieces of feedback I'm going to give to Gene is, you know, this year we had four auditors on stage. Next year, I think we need to have four lawyers on stage. I love it. Yeah, I actually had Mike Wolf in here on a podcast last night. We had a great conversation about, you know, the GRC and the audit side of things. And, and mm -hmm. he said something that I love, which is, uh, if we could only make it easy for developers to do the right things, then compliance would be built in. Right. And I was like, oh. That's exactly yeah. what we're trying to do. Yeah, 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 <laughs> absolutely. But it will take a new, a new kind of a, a new kind of concept of operations. I think that starts to recognize the fact that we're moving, and, and you know, these are these are words that we hear, but but they're not they're words that I'm still really working hard to invest with meaning. It is meaningful to say that we are moving from a world of managing complicated systems to truly complex systems. So what's a complicated system? The complicated system is like the Model T assembly line. You know, it takes significant mental power to have thought of that, and it's non-trivial to stand one up and keep it going. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of dependencies, stuff can break. But what the, an assembly line like that does not have, it in general does not have emergent behavior. It generally does not have cascading failure modes, you know, failure modes where one failure is amplified and then spills over, and, you know, right. um, you know, failure is more localized, it's more easily contained. And it doesn't surprise you. You know, the assembly line doesn't start all of a sudden manufacturing toasters, you yeah. know, if it's been set up to manufacture cars, you know. That would and, be great to see a yeah, on a Model T frame. You know, and it's not that IT, I don't want to trivialize IT systems, but IT systems, when especially when you look at, you know, just the, the vast set of interdependencies in, say, a microservice architecture and the different ways when you look at some of the, the, the major ways that, that systems have broken down and failed, some of the things that make the headlines like the, uh, the flash crash, the night capital crash. I mean, these are, these are, you know, um, uh, in some cases like the flat, the, you know, the flash crash thing with it, when the Dow Jones went down 600 points, they still don't quite understand it. Right. And they saw all kinds of really bizarre behavior happening in these hyper automated systems that were, you know, basically these tight feedback loops where the, the machines are making decisions based on what the other machines are saying until the whole thing just gets out of control. Right. And so this is, you know, calling for a different con different concepts of work, different concepts of how do we think about the human in relationship to the machine. Uh, this is where resilience engineering comes in. I'm super excited by resilience engineering and yeah. the work that people like Richard Cook and John Allspar are promoting it's so important, so important for vendors. I think like ServiceNow. Yeah, that's a big part of it. I mean, we uh, obviously we've been pushing our machine learning and AI capabilities internally, but it's there's still a lot that requires 
a limbic system. I mean, for lack of a better way, I mean, yeah. I think, I think uh, Elon Musk said it best when he was on Joe Rogan's thing. It's like the one thing AI is always missing is a limbic system. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's very important in a lot of decision making. And it it's is. really hard to make synthetically. Like we don't yeah. care how much processing power you have. Right. If you don't have a limbic system of which you are beholden to. Right. You're not going to be able to make yeah. the right decisions for right. for for a human anyway. Yeah, and you've got to you've got to design design that system as an integrated whole. And so this is one of the challenges I'm having. You know, I'm, I'm issuing to all the vendors, especially those vendors like like you guys who are involved in any way in incident management. It's like why? Okay, you're painting a set of pixels in front of the eyes of operators. Who are under cognitive load or under cognitive stress? They may be they may be in a situation where they are well aware that the decisions they make may have significant economic or you know heaven forbid even life or death consequences yeah. increasingly in healthcare. That's yeah, and I'm, I'm especially referring to the WannaCry virus, locking locking you know, emergency room doctors to the point where they had to redirect ambulances in real time. Um, in the United Kingdom. I mean, I read the Crown Audit Report. Basically, my takeaway was nobody died this time. Right. You know, can you imagine being in the in the knock? You yeah. know, when that was happening in the NHS. No, you know, the, that's and, and that entire vertical's yeah. biggest nightmare would be that. And we Care. know, you know, that when you're under that kind of stress, you're you're subject to a, a flooding. You can't think. You're starting to rely more and more on reflex. This is why the military drills and drills and drills because it knows that your higher level thinking starts to really degrade very quickly when you're under stress. Your pupils contract. You don't see. Your field of vision narrows. All of this stuff happens when you get the cortisol in. So the question I have for for anybody doing incident management, you know, uh, or monitoring, whether it's you or PagerDuty or New Relic or X Matters or whoever. Why are you choosing that particular set of pixels to paint for the operator? Yeah. You know, what's the theoretical basis for this? Because we've been doing this stuff on a craft basis. We've been doing it based on experience and seat of the pants and what we think the customer is saying. Well, does the customer even really know what's happening? Right. Where is the research basis for this? Yeah, that's a lot. It's been uh, what you trigger on goes back to uh, when I was back at the bank. One of our biggest challenges was trying to figure out what a good developer is. Yeah. And it was really hard because on one hand, you'd look at one metric of just developer throughput. And so you may only write four releases a month. I write a hundred. Mm-hmm. So then they look at me and say, I'm the better developer. But the reality is out of a hundred, I introduced yeah. 98 bugs. Right. You haven't introduced a bug in over six months right. and you're a perfect, pristine developer. And it's like, well, which one would you rather have on your team? Well, it depends on what metrics I'm gathering and how I'm correlating the yeah, data to exactly. actually see what good looks like. This is and, why, yeah. Yeah, that's why we love it because we're we're very well positioned with data to see see data across the service management lens, which allows us to paint. You know, now we can see how incidents correlate to that and events correlate to that. And you know, we've got all these now commits coming in. How do I see? And I can start to see these patterns. Then, yeah. like, oh yeah. well, exactly. Eric looks like the top developer, but he's actually not. He's got a much lower trust about factor yeah. and, and a higher risk factor. Right. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's interesting to see that stuff, but it's. Yeah. I, I love where you're going with this because I just watched the Chernobyl special and it was just uh, it was absolutely mind blowing to see how they just ignored all the data and like you said got stressed and under the stress made human things right even though other humans were saying no we can't do this and it's right. just like yeah uh, and it was just amazing because every system was telling them no don't do this yeah um, but it was pretty wild but yeah 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 I'm um, hoping that that's where I'm really hoping. Machine learning and AI can help us uh, yeah. be less human a little bit. Is yeah. 
giving us data and making sure we understand that data is what we've set in policy that we need to uh, actually understand and govern, right? But yeah. getting the right KPIs, the right metrics, the right data points in, and getting rid of the noise, I think, is going to be the trick. And I think you, the, the AI piece for me, I think, especially in the context of when the, the, the time tempo goes up, it's being able to point the analytics infrastructure in the right direction and quickly, quickly use it to isolate. So, so human plus machine. Yeah. You know, the 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 the, the, uh, the human using the machine to take take time out of the equation, um, and then that requires a certain level of adeptness and practice. Practice. Uh, and so, how, the question is: as incidents become fewer, routine incidents become fewer, repeating incidents become fewer, how do we train people? Um, how do we simulate? Um, I, I, I think that increasingly the, the, the lack of meaningful uh, simulation will be an increasing operational risk. And this is automation paradox again, which is one of my recent reports. Uh, shameless plug here, we wrote a paper I called Be, Beware the Automation Paradox. Nice. Um, because as we get better at fixing bugs, one of the things that we've had for a long time in IT is the repeating known incident. ITIL called it a, a known error. Yeah. I mean, what is this saying? It means that there's something broken and we haven't gotten around to fixing it for a year, two years, three years. And the, the repeating long-lived known error was the economic basis of the big call centers in Bangalore and Manila, the economic basis of Tata and WeGrowth. And now with AI and DevOps, I mean, we've, we're left shifting, we're automating, and we're fixing the bug quicker. Um, so that means that any given bug, any given incident issue defect is more likely to be a zero-day thing, which means that it can't be handled by Tier 1 or Tier 2. It's got to go to Tier 3. So you wind up automating the easy stuff, and what's left is the hard stuff. Right. And we're seeing this in MTTR drifting up. And if you don't believe me, go talk to Bob Davis of Plutora. Yeah. Um, Bob is seeing this in the data. He's gone on the record in a Forrester report that he's seeing this, and they aggregate a ton of data. Yeah. And so it makes sense because yeah. if, if all the simple, but then I guess my question would be, why aren't we just capturing the stuff that we solved in milliseconds? And why well, is people, that offsetting the MTTR? Yeah, because people, because that's no longer figured into the numbers. Uh, yeah, that's the so part of it is the human decisions. Gotcha. And sometimes those human decisions are very bad. I've talked to teams whose bonuses are at risk because they put in a bunch of automation mm -hmm. saying that we're going to drive MTTR down. And they didn't get the math right because, yeah, they're no, those, 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 all that low-hanging fruit is no longer figuring into the mean. Yeah. And so the mean went up. Right. You oh, know, yeah. and then I know. Yeah, because the only thing left is complex ones. That yeah, longer, there's a sense. couple stories floating around the industry where, where team, you know, people at a senior level have gotten burned with their performance report, their, wow. their bonuses because of that. That's a bummer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, don't, don't do that. But we're so much better. Well, <laughs> uh, you, you came up with the KPI. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, KPIs can be scary. Uh, yeah, you keep two of sword. Yeah. We had a 30 day bug at one of the companies I worked for, which uh, one of the, uh, God, this goes way back. So one of the, like the NT administrators uh, had a server that every 30 days ran out of memory. So it would be the 30 day bug where they had to reboot right. 28 days to keep the yeah. server crashing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they operationalized that. They literally, yeah. I, when I joined the team, they're like, yeah, we have the, oh yeah, that's part of the 30 day bug. Yeah. Like, there is no third, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, we have a memory leak. We don't know what causes it, so we call it the 3D book. Right. <laughs> like, right. And you anybody think of figuring out what the memory leak is? 
Also uh, made the cut in some of the developers' backlog for the last three years. Yeah. He hasn't made the cut yet. That's crazy. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So what else do you want to chat about? What other things can you shamelessly plug? That's a great one. I, I love that, that the MTTR paradox. I remember you presenting that to us, I don't know, six months ago or so, mm-hmm. I'm starting to form that idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you solve all the easy stuff, the only thing left is the complex stuff. So this KPI gets whacked because yeah, of that. Yeah, you know, it's, you, there's, no, there's no silver bullet here. Um, well, I think, uh, um, and I talked about resiliency engineering. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, basically... I mentioned earlier the need for a new overall operating model. An operating model is a fairly loose concept. I mean, people will say people process technology, but there's more to it than that. And, um, you know, the operating model that I'm talking about is basically as we transition from, you know, I don't, there's a, there's a, well, there was a, a management philosopher named Taylor, Frederick Taylor, okay. I'm sure you know him. Okay. Um, and, um, a lot of the practices and processes we put in place reflect a Taylorist approach. Break the problem down, um, continue, you know, isolate your little capabilities, continuously improve them. If you auto, if you optimize all the pieces, then the whole will be also optimized. Uh, and you know, we're in a world where these assumptions are breaking down, and. These assumptions gave us project management. They gave us, you know, very rigorous process management. They're all right for an operational world where you are simply trying to continuously improve and just shave off a few extra percentage points or basis points off, you know, off your off your costs or, or your risks or whatever. But for a world of complex multi, uh, you know, multi-cloud microservices um, where you have emergent behavior, the whole operating model absolutely has to change and what you wind up needing is to look at well what is my hr philosophy what is my financial philosophy how am i investing how am i sustaining a portfolio we heard this morning from bmw pivoting from projects to product portfolio yeah um how are we um uh are, are we as our hr department still oriented around bringing the right skills to the work or is it more about bringing the work to the team, supporting the team, and only reteaming if you really need to? Uh, and I think that that's much more constructive because when you've got a high-performing team, the last thing you want to do is just you know willy-nilly be pulling Mary off and and putting Stephanie on, you know, because you know Mary knew no, then now the team needs to do some pythons where it's going to swap some people out. No, I think that there's a strong case that you know that you want to you want to get Mary up to speed now on Python um, and uh, maybe a simplistic example if Mary is otherwise a, a very high performing and, and, and high contributing member of that team because that team I think is one of the most the high performing cross-functional teams I think one of the most valuable economic units of the 21st century yeah and it's there's a lot of intangibles a lot of psychological things going on the psychological safety issues you don't just go randomly swapping people in and out because of you know some arbitrary skills skills matrix profile thing that the HR department ran, you know. So, yeah, I've, yeah. Okay. So many stories just flooded into my head about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's that's another part of the new operating model. Mm-hmm. So we probably don't have time to go. But I mean, just yeah. to close out the operating model in general, it's your execution strategy, it's your governance strategy, it's your funding strategy, it's your 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 people and staffing strategy, um, 
all of these things. There's there's big before and after uh, kinds of kinds of. So I don't know if you can call it out here, but I saw some tweet you wrote about uh, you know COVID needs to change. This needs to change. Like yeah, all these things need to change. Who do you yeah. think is? Does anybody have it right yet, or is on the right path? Do you think, or do we all need to come together as a team? And, and well, try to fix it? Um, so one of the so with COVID in particular. Um, what I, I will say this, one of the things that needs to go away in the new operating model is really any concept of life cycle, plan, build, run. I mean, sure, plan, build, run still exists at, you know, kind of a, at an individual team level. In general, you have an idea before you write the code. And in general, you write the code before you deploy it to production. You know, there are some things here. In general. But this is happening now, not as these big, writ large governance constructs right. that you can base a whole operating model on. The whole organization is lining up under this big plan build run thing. There's even an annual release cadence, you know. It's just, no, you've got all these microservices, all of these smaller components, and they're all doing plan, plan build run in this very fine-grained thing. And so when you look at COVID, the general macro architecture of COVID is plan, build, run. And yeah. so your basic governance mindset, you, you're, you're, therefore your auditors that are coming in are going to come in with a plan, build, run orientation. And you can look at the policy frameworks in large organizations. And we've been, some people have been shipping some of these over to us to go through and comb out all the waterfall. And you just see decades of these layered waterfall assumptions. It doesn't say waterfall. It doesn't say SDLC. It's something as blatant as that. Right. You know, in general, policy frameworks are supposed to be what, not how. But you look at them and you look at them critically and you realize, wow, there's some, there's really some waterfall assumptions baked in here that I've got to start pulling out. That's why it was one of the most interesting conversations I had here. Another tweet I put out talking to a senior leader who had driven a DevOps transformation. And he said, uh, you know, my attorney is one of the most important people I have because the attorney beyond the auditors whose hands are tied and often in many ways they've got a very you know strict you know they've got a very strict mandate but if you've got a policy framework well who is it that then you know writes these policies you know it's it's in general it's it's internal counsel and you know I'm not talking about external litigation issues you know that's another whole topic not, not germane here but but in general when you're looking at a policy framework that's operating at a board level yeah it's going to be somebody with a legal mind that is looking at looking at it and working with the smes right and right. so um you know who is it then that can go and look at that policy and, and and look at it you know with a devops professional and say look this screams waterfall it says that you know there's it's implying and it's driving us to an operating model that's introducing latency and cost of delay because there's this assumption of this big QA pause, you know, that's just going to add more time. Yeah. You know, and I think that this is one of the few pieces of guidance I have is you know, people need to really start looking for that kind of thing. Very so, cool. yeah. Thanks, man. Well, thank you so much for joining yeah. us today. I appreciate you taking yeah. the time. Yeah.